Welcome to episode 52 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hey, welcome back to another episode. We um, want to thank everyone who joined us for our live uh, show that we did. And um, that was a lot of fun. And we're glad to be back recording another episode and that we didn't, you know, end when we got to 50. <laughs> That's exciting that we're going to keep mm-hmm. going. Um, so I wanted to share one of the things we talked touched on briefly in the episode last week was some of the challenges um, around doing teletherapy in the schools and working through the IEP process and the unique things that come with that. And so uh, Stacey Pfaff, who was hoping to join us for our live show and wasn't able to at the last minute, she had an article recently talking about teletherapy and IEP procedures. And she talked about that um, some things that she does to get input from other team members. She, uh, if you go to her article, she talks about getting, she has a teacher input form that she uses on Google Forms to get information from the teachers. I've also created some, um, mostly with my uh, private practice clients that I've seen to get information from parents too, but that could be a great thing to use before an IEP to kind of um get that information. So the main thing that she talks about and that I've experienced is you have to get a little bit creative in the ways that you are going to communicate with families and communicate with um, teachers to get that input before you get into the meeting. And I have uh, a lot of IEPs that I've done where they kind of forget me as a team member, sometimes literally, sometimes I am calling the front office and saying, I'm supposed to be in this meeting and I don't know who's calling me or who's going to connect to me. So, you know, checking on things like that, you know, um, maybe providing them with, you know, this is a Zoom meeting you can reach me on, or this is the website you can reach me on before the meeting, um, double checking uh, the day of and things like that. But uh, yeah, some things that I've experienced is, you know, even technical things like making sure they point the the camera towards whoever is speaking in the IEP meeting. I would always prefer if you can to be on video versus a phone call for that reason that you can kind of get the feel of what's happening in the room. You can read the parents better to see if they're understanding things that you are explaining and, and, you know, if they are, um, you can feel more if they're on board with the goals that you're presenting and things like that. So it's definitely the, the, I don't know, one of the trickiest things that I wasn't expecting to be difficult when I switched to teletherapy was that um, participating and even setting up IEP meetings. But I found with just a lot, over-communicate. Communicate more than you think that you need to with your schools and with everyone involved with the meeting. So we hope that that helps. I have to say I've never participated in an IEP meeting through telepractice. I've never had to do that. So yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. I, I mean, I'm sweating now just thinking if I had to do that, <laughs> you know, it would it would be a challenge for me to do that. Uh, so my hat's off to you and and, yeah. and, and Stacy and everyone else who has to do that. 
on a regular basis because it it can I can just see how challenging it would be. I mean, it's challenging anyway, but then trying to and especially if you're living, right. if you're providing services and you're, you know, a few states away and <laughs> having to coordinate yep. all that, it can uh, I can see where it can be quite a challenge. Yep. Yep. Luckily, most schools um, have online IEP systems now. Mm -hmm. So the actual like writing of the IEP is actually easier, I think, (laughs) than than, um, having to be in person in a lot of places. So that luckily is something that is not a huge barrier. It's just more of the interacting and interfacing with everybody. Right, right. So like you say, just communicate, communicate, communicate. Yep. Make sure everyone doesn't forget you because you, you're <laughs> a vital part of the team. And, um, and more than likely, the parents are going to be asking questions about those related services, the speech yeah. and language services that you're providing. So yep. you need to be a part of the team. Well, on the podcast today, we have something a little different. We have uh, some some faculty and a AUD student. Uh, the student is Haley Prinz. And Dr. Kimberly Peters and Dr. Douglas Sladen, they are all from Western Washington University. And they're going to talk to us about some survey research they did recently looking at diagnostic infant auditory brainstem response testing um, done through telepractice or telehealth. So we definitely want to have more, more audiologists and more researchers within audiology as well as other allied health disciplines to be on the show. So um, it's going to be great to sort of uh, connect with them and to hear more about what they're doing with teleaudiology. Great. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I just wanted to reach out to you, our really talented, wonderful listeners that we have, And just ask you if you want to join us. Yes. Would you like to be a content creator for the 3C Digital Media Network? We need you. We need content creators to come and join us. So if you have a blog, a webinar, a course, or maybe even a podcast that you'd like to do, we would love to speak with you. So please, if you have some ideas, email me at Todd, T-O-D-D, at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com, and I'll reach out, and we can have a conversation. And so hopefully we could have you develop whatever you'd like to develop and work with us. Again, just Todd at 3cdigitalmedianetwork, and I'll be in touch. Now, Back to the interview. Well, welcome to the podcast, guys. We have Haley Prinz, uh, Kimberly Peters, and and Doug Sladen, all from Western Washington University. So, like, we get that right. Uh, Western Washington. They've done this great study uh, looking at uh, auditory brainstem testing uh, using telehealth and telepractice. So, so guys, how how did this study? sort of happened? How did it come together? Well, so we took a seminar course with Dr. Sladen, Doug, 
Uh, and we talked about professional issues in audiology and the topic for that course was telehealth. And so that kind of sparked my interest initially in telehealth and telepractice and how it relates to audiology. Um, and I've always been interested in pediatrics and auditory brainstem response testing. And so for our fourth year capstone projects, as a part of our coursework at Western, um, we need to do a research study of some sort or, you know, a study. And so um, that's where the initial interest started. So we basically were curious to find out what audiologists in Washington state think of telehealth for using it for ABRs and trying to figure out what they identify as barriers to using telehealth to perform diagnostic ABRs. Talk to me about how the study was set up in terms of uh, the equipment you used and how, how it all sort of came to pass. Sure. So the study itself was a survey. So we sent out a survey on various Facebook groups and emailing audiologists in Washington state and we had survey questions about what audiologists, what their opinions are on using telehealth in general for diagnostic ABRs, as well as kind of identifying specific barriers. So uh, insurance reimbursement, um, equipment setup, all of those good things. So trying to figure out and pinpoint what they identify as, as barriers. And let's talk about some of the results you guys found. So let's kind yeah. of work through that. So we primarily found that audiologists are either kind of neutral or disagree that telehealth <laughs> is an effective way to uh, administer these tests. Uh, and we also found that they identified insurance reimbursement primarily and equipment cost as barriers, which it wasn't too surprising. Uh, other barriers that we had talked about, like internet connection, ability to counsel, uh, things of that nature, they were a little more neutral on or didn't really identify those as barriers as much. So uh, we were primarily running into insurance reimbursement and equipment costs as main barriers, but overall finding that folks were either neutral or just disagreed with audio or telehealth being a good way to administer uh, auditory brainstem response testing. So were you surprised at all about those results or what, what were your feelings when you guys saw that, um, those feelings that other people were having? You know, I think, I don't know if it was necessarily too surprising. I think, you know, we kind of know audiology as a field hasn't really latched on to telehealth um, and maybe now more so as we've run into the pandemic, like we were um, talking about that people are more and more becoming open to the idea. So I don't know if Dr. Peters and Dr. Sladen, if you agree with that or if you were surprised or not. Yeah, I'm, I wasn't too surprised. I feel like if with telehealth, there are some really obvious good fits that most people agree are pretty easy to implement. Uh, like oral rehabilitation is, is fairly easy to implement. Mm -hmm. And diagnostic pediatric AVR testing is a complex task and it requires a lot of sophisticated equipment and expertise. And so it's not too shocking that audiologists feel a little bit resistant towards letting go of what they know to be this type of activity and, and kind of conceptualizing a new form of diagnostic ABR where they're not actually having their hands on the person when they, they have some remote person doing uh, the assistance or assisting them. 
I think um, I was a little surprised personally that people were not more comfortable with the counseling piece. Mm-hmm. I can understand the I could understand the trepidation about um, the complexity of the task itself and the equipment and who would be on the other end and how that would be managed. But I, I, I was surprised that the counseling was that people felt like the counseling really needed to happen in the, in person. Um, so that was interesting, but I, that I have more experience with remote oral habilitation and Mm -hmm. It hasn't, I, I, I think I, I probably was nervous about that piece as well when I started, but it just doesn't feel that it doesn't, it's okay. I don't know. I, I, I enjoy it sometimes a little <laughs> bit more mm-hmm. than the chaos that can be happening um, in a therapy room. So mm-hmm. sometimes it can be a little bit easier even to just have that, have, um, have the connection happen and the counseling happen that way. So I was a little surprised by that and a little bit surprised in Washington state because we have a lot of challenges with um, accessibility to services, a a lot of challenges. So that, that surprised me a little bit as well, that more people wouldn't be open to the idea because it did seem like people felt there were very few people who felt like this would be a good idea or a feasible idea. Um, in the survey. So, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, how many of those barriers do you think are actually there versus perceived that they're there? I think definitely insurance reimbursement is a barrier, you know, yeah, we have the list of approved CPT codes now from ASHA, you know, saying that certain audiology services and speech language pathology services are covered via telehealth. Right now, uh, as far as I know, auditory brainstem response testing is not on that list. So that's certainly a barrier. Uh, But like Dr. Peters was saying, I think counseling is one where it might be more of a perceived barrier versus I think it's something that maybe once people do a little more, they'll become Mm -hmm. more comfortable with it. There's also a fear about letting go of some of the um, some of the troubleshooting skills that are required, Mm -hmm. having to train someone on the other end on how to scrub a patient's head and how to troubleshoot impedance. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's an unrealistic fear to have (laughs) Mm -hmm. some challenges to overcome and it's going to require some effort and it may require periodic retraining of personnel as you have Mm -hmm. turnover or, um, uh, you know, continuing opportunities for, you know, assistants to learn how to do that work. But I don't think they're, they're unsurmountable. Like I, I do think that, uh, as we've seen other models around Canada and the U.S., that it is possible to get around those with enough support, and enough infrastructure, and enough training to provide mm-hmm. that support. And I will say, now that I've gotten to do a little more ABR hands-on, <laughs> I can relate more to that fear of, like you said, the equipment setup piece and troubleshooting, and how often I you know, I'm putting that insert earphone back in or repositioning something in the middle of my testing. So I can relate to that. I see where people are coming from. And that actually wasn't a question that we originally included in the survey, but one that people wrote in. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I can definitely relate to that. But like you were saying, I think 
you know, as long as you have someone on the other end who's equipped to, to, mm -hmm. to troubleshoot those situations and deal with those situations, then it's something that can be successful and has been successful in certain models that have been done before. So I appreciate the, the overview of, of the study and how, what you guys found. Let's maybe take a step wider and kind of talk about uh, audiology in general. And what do you think is going to happen with telehealth or telepractice within audiology? Well, I'll take a first stab at that. Um, in the area of, of cochlear implants, which is mm -hmm. my focus, we are definitely moving towards a, a greater service model for telehealth and cochlear implants. And much like the ABR question, we were very afraid about what's going to happen with equipment. How are we going to control the delivery of electricity to a person's cochlea remotely? And how are we going to do that safely and maintain confidence of data? And, and how are we going to do it logistically? And, and that hasn't proven to be too difficult. In fact, I would say that the learning curve was really steep for about a week, fairly <laughs> <laughs> shallow. Mm -hmm. um, and now I feel like technology needs to catch up with us. Like mm -hmm. we are gaining comfort and mm -hmm. a sense of um, ability to do remote programming for implants, but now we need better technologies in place to do that. So mm -hmm. cloud-based technologies and um, other hardware that can be used in assisting us so that we don't have to have the laborious task of sending a whole laptop or a tablet to somebody's house. Mm -hmm. Rather, they can plug in where they are using a smaller device or some downloadable software onto their own home computer. So I feel like in that area, we are, we are definitely moving more towards having a nice combination of, of in-person services and, and remote programming. And that'll open up a lot of doors for, well, people that live far away, obviously, but then also people that can't get off from work and take a whole mm -hmm. day or half a day to come to our center and, and then travel home and, and lose those workable hours and that, that income and other indirect costs, of course. Yeah, that's what I think it's not uncommon for um, cochlear implant programming to be few and far between. I know in I live in Utah and we have one, maybe two <laughs> places where you can go and get um, your implant programmed. And so I think that that is is definitely filling a need and is definitely something that needs to be continued to push forward because we do are starting to have the technology for it. So there's not as much reason to make families, you know, travel far and, and like you said, take all that time off and things like that. When COVID hit, our entire campus shut down, including our hearing clinic. And the only audiology services that were maintained were oral rehabilitation and cochlear implant programming. Everything else was was completely shut down. So it was it was kind of it was shocking to me actually that we could pivot so quickly mm -hmm. the field of cochlear implants to a remote a remote model. I was thrilled and happy, yeah. but also a little a little shocked that it wasn't harder. And one thing that I've been struck by is how the hearing aid manufacturers as well as cochlear implant manufacturers they seem to be really jumping into telehealth and, and maybe pushing audiology in that direction where some of the audiologists may not 
might be ready for a lot of that. But uh, it seems like uh, everything that I'm reading and seeing, and even this uh, this past week, we had the American Cochlear Implant Alliance conference and some of the presentations, some of the uh, discussions there of, of how they're building in the capability for remote uh, programming of hearing aids and, and cochlear implants and all of this. And with this idea of, like you were saying earlier, Doug, you know, the technology catching up. They're, my, my impression is that they're trying to sort of see what the future is going to hold and, and try to make sure their products are, are meeting that demand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, that the onset of COVID also kind of parallels this issue that we were talking about before, which is a growing understanding about access and mm-hmm. making sure that we are providing access to all patients and that we're not somehow marginalizing patients because they can't mm-hmm. get to our centers and making sure that things are, are equitable. So perhaps those, those, those efforts that we're already beginning you know, with COVID have now kind of illuminated that, that mm-hmm. issue even, even more and caused mm-hmm. the manufacturers and hearing aid companies to get more online. There's certainly, there's certainly lots of challenges ahead of us still. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about areas like vestibular assessments and diagnostic mm-hmm. audiology. Mm-hmm. We're doing testing under headphones that need to be calibrated using audiometers that need to meet ANSI standards. Uh, but also those things are, those technologies are also emerging and, and some of them are already out there in the market. Uh, so yeah, I think we're definitely seeing kind of the, the the introduction of these things in almost all domains of audiology. It's it's having a, a huge impact for sure. And so where do you guys, do you have other ideas in terms of research or where do you want to go with some of the telehealth? I'm always, you know, thrilled to to hear what other training programs are doing in telehealth and telepractice. So you guys have some research projects or training projects underway? Ellie, do you have any interest in, in- continuing on your work? <laughs> you know, I actually, I would love to. Um, my uh, externship placement right now is working on getting remote uh, diagnostic ABR testing set up, which is really interesting. And so I'd love to be a part of that. But even back at home in Washington, uh, if there was a way to do it, I don't know, maybe through the university or something like that would probably be the one of the most ideal environments to to implement something like that. So that would be really neat. So It'd be very fun to set up a remote ABR program for, for Washington as well. Absolutely. I'm on board. And so if you want to do it, just let me know and I'll, I'll help. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sounds good. We're starting a new study um, with Cochlear looking at remote programming and mm-hmm. using a new technology that they've developed for interfacing between the patient's device and our home office. So uh, we're hoping to get IRB approval for that in the next few weeks. And, and that particular device will be very similar to the remote programming that we're doing now, except it'll eliminate some of the hardware and make it much more feasible to just plug a device into a patient's home computer. And then we can connect with that device from our home office. Sorry. We, sorry. <laughs> we participated. My son has cochlear implants. We participated in a remote programming study with um, Seattle Children's recently. And um, they are 
you know, one of the, one of the questions, one of the questions I had is what about, what will you be doing for speech recognition testing? How will that, how will that be, um, added in? And, and, you know, I think the challenges that with kids at least, um, for program for remote programming are things like the troubleshooting and do you have someone at the other end who knows how to troubleshoot and can do speech recognition testing? Do you have a booth available? Is there a suite available to do that um, type of testing? Um, it was a, it was actually a really smooth process. There was no, you know, we didn't encounter any challenges at all and it was fun and it was closer to my house and it's, you know, better for the environment, <laughs> all of those great mm-hmm. things. I do still feel um, that there are, there's a reluctance to refer for virtual services for some families, even when there's no evidence that it would, that it would be a challenge for a family. So this Mm -hmm. is a thing that has, I've noticed has come up for me recently is, well, we would refer this child to you if, but you're still doing, you're not doing in person yet. You're not doing in person yet. And Mm -hmm. this child is really busy. And so that has been, that has been an interesting now that things are opening up again, mm-hmm. I have gotten a lot of questions or are you in person yet? Are you in person yet? We'll refer mm-hmm. when they're, when you're in person again. So, um, you know, and, and also just families have transportation issues. So it may be that it would be better for, it may be that it would be better for a child to have, to have, to be in person but it actually may result in less therapy for that family if they can't right. get to in-person services. So, so telehealth maybe may involve a lot more counseling and coaching, but there might be, that might have um, ultimately a better, there might be ultimately a better outcome for that. So I, I think that's been an interesting thing that I'm noticing just recently as places around here are starting to open up. Um, but I have to say that the, the in the remote programming went beautifully for my son. He's 11, so he's not hard. And I think that's why he was one of the earlier participants just to, he's easy to test mm-hmm. the HIPAA issues and the, the, you know, having to use a, um, the hospital VPN. I mean, all of those, I think those are, um, things that as, as Doug said, were the, the technologies kind of need to catch up to what, mm-hmm what we're trying to do. Um, and I'm doing a, I have, I have IRB approval approval for a study with listen and talk, looking at, um, parent engagement remotely and measuring Mm -hmm. theory of mind, um, and executive functioning remotely over longitudinally. So that'll be fun. We kind of put that together in the, in a pandemic moment. What can we, what can things, what data can we gather? on zoom. <laughs> so yeah, that's um, exciting. So that'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. So for our listeners and for me who has been out of the, the hearing loss world for a while, walk me through what it does look like when someone um, remotely programs a cochlear implant, whether Kimberly um, it's with your own son or uh, Dr. Slayton, that what, what it looks like when you're doing it, both sides of it. For us, it requires us to take a laptop that we can mm-hmm. uh, FedEx or deliver to a patient. And we have the cochlear implant software on that laptop. And all of the 
the database for all patients has been removed. So the only file in that software is the patient that you're sending it to so that there's no risk of them opening or seeing somebody else's file when they, when they, when we open up the program, the computer is delivered to the patient with a very clear set of instructions about how to connect that laptop to their home Wi-Fi. So it does require that they have a minimum, a minimum mm-hmm. amount of speed and bandwidth on their home Wi-Fi to complete remote programming. And you can run a test on your computer just on web test to see if your computer meets that minimum strength and minimum speed. Once they have the laptop connected to their Wi-Fi, I've got a program called TeamViewer on that laptop. Mm-hmm. And when that computer is connected to the Wi-Fi, it pops up to my screen and I am able to access that computer from my home office. And that's all the patient needs to do is get it connected to their Wi-Fi. Then I can take control of it from my home office and I can launch a video chat to talk to them about what's going to happen next, walk them through how to connect their processor to the cable and how to get the cochlear implant interface connected to the USB drive. And then it's just standard programming. It's mm-hmm. having them tell me when they hear sounds, how many sounds and how loud those are. You know, you have to configure it a little bit differently so that there's no beeps coming through. And periodically you have to ask them to turn away from the screen so they can't see the flashing blue ball that tells us when the stimulation is coming. But otherwise it's, it's rather routine. Uh, and then we just do programming as we normally would then they close the program at the end of the session and they send it back to us. We export that file from the software and then we import it back into our database at the home office so we don't lose the data. Simple, right? <laughs> Sorry? I said it's simple, right? It, 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 that, maybe that sounded complex, but it's more <laughs> straightforward than we thought it was going to be. Like, yeah, so, right. Uh, we, I can... I kind of thought it was going to be more difficult and there's, you know, logistically you have to pack things up and you need to Mm -hmm. sanitize it when it comes back and sterilize it and wipe it down and, and make sure that the data is exported, you know, correctly. That's not hard work. It's not, doesn't take a lot of brain power for that. It just takes, you know, some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how it is for the patient side? Well, I mean, from the patient side, it was, um, it, honestly, it was really fun. The audiologist who was doing the programming from Seattle was on like a like a an iPad on a, a on a wheeling around the room, like we had a face, <laughs> um, you know, in the room with us. There were there were there was a, a programming audiologist and um, the um, PI for the studies, who's also a research audiologist. So there were three audiologists at our end. And that's definitely different from, you know, I think the goal with children is to, is to make the programming as close to them as possible. I think it would be a lot harder to do what Doug is doing with, with pediatric clients, because we had, we went to a closer satellite of the hospital and Mm -hmm. essentially had the same experience we would have had, had we driven all the way downtown into Seattle. Um, But there was an audiologist at our end who got us, got all the equipment hooked up. And then the audiologist in Seattle just took over that um, laptop. So um, it was really quite seamless. 
except I will say it was, it was just, this was just kind of entertaining that when I arrived uh, at the hospital, I said, you know, we're here for this appointment. And the receptionist said, well, this is a telehealth appointment. Why are you here? And I said, I think I'm supposed to be here. I, I know it's telehealth, but I can't really be at home because it's too complicated for me to be doing this at home by, you know, this is research, et cetera. But it was sort you know, um, it is definitely not, it, I don't see it happening for especially young kids in their, in their homes yet. Right. Um, Cause it's tricky. And, you know, it was hard to also just talking to when like things came up when we were there, I had to bring up something's going on with X, Y, and Z. I think the batteries aren't quite fitting. Um, his implant is cutting out. And then we had to troubleshoot in that moment. Um, and we needed equipment that we wouldn't have had if we were home. Yeah. So, um, and that's true for adults as well. Uh, but it really was nice to not have to drive through traffic, you know, right. so that was great. Right. So even that I think is a real benefit, um, to having like satellite, a sat- satellite, like small satellites are around mm-hmm. a, a state as large as Washington state. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it could work well. Yeah. And I think we've all probably experienced what can go wrong when someone who is not experienced with pediatrics gets right. a hold of a child with hearing loss. And, you know, cause it's, it is, it's different than when you're doing adults and, mm-hmm. and to have that, you know, access of someone who maybe is an audiologist, but doesn't know as much about pediatrics to have that connectivity with someone who is an expert in that, I think Mm -hmm. is a good outcome for everyone. Even if they do have to physically still go somewhere, it can be somewhere Mm -hmm. closer to them. So that was sort of the spokes in the wheel kind of uh, model where the main hospital connects to the Mm -hmm. remote uh, satellite facility and people go to the satellite facility um, so those are, those are great models. So it's, it sounds like you guys are seeing both of those there in Washington being used. So that's exciting what you're doing and then what you're also experiencing. Well, I think we're at a point now that we will call our, you know, moment of Zen. Are you guys up to, for this? <laughs> so we well, have, I'm very curious. Yeah, we have, uh, well, this is something uh, we're just doing to sort of lighten the moment and get to know you guys a little more personal, personally. Um, have you guys ever seen the show uh, Inside the Actors Studio? So uh, This is like James... it's becoming an age test, Todd. We can True. tell. <laughs> I failed the age There's test. There's a certain threshold when people are like, yes, I know that one. I know it. So much is wasted on the youth. Right, Kim? <laughs> really? So, uh, I, Doug, so, I mean, Doug really doesn't have an excuse because he, he's he's <laughs> my generation. <laughs> so uh, on the show, James Lipton, who's no longer with us, but right. he would interview these actors. And then at the end, he had these questions that were originally done by Proust, the, the playwright. Now, we have modified those questions. And I even modified them again today, Kim. So... Hopefully this will uh, go quickly. So the goal is I'll ask you some questions and you just answer what comes to mind and you can elaborate as much or as little or not at all. Okay. Totally up to you. There's no right or wrong way to answer. Okay. So Haley, 
And this is for all, each question all of you have to answer. So Haley, what's the most used app on your phone? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with, mm, this is a boring answer, but it's probably my email. <laughs> email. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Sladen. Um, I would have to say it's my travel app, like the maps. The maps. Yeah. Cool. Dr. Yeah. Peter. You're? I'm going to say it's a tie between Twitter and the New York <laughs> Times spelling bee, Ooh, which I good. love. I highly recommend. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Haley, what was the last TV series you streamed? Ooh, I really like Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Mm. I would highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. I remember the original show. Uh, <laughs> the reboot's very good. <laughs> Dr. Sladen, what was the last series that you streamed? That's an easy one. Handmaid's Tale. It just Ooh. released the <laughs> season. I had to take like a mental break from that. It was like <laughs> causing some like real life anxiety and depression yeah. <laughs> watching that show. <laughs> For sure. I feel the same way. <laughs> Dr. Peters, your last show that you streamed. All all creatures great and small. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Be a nice break from, him, from Handmaid's Tale, by the way. It's a, it's a positive respite from. <laughs> very, yeah. very true. Very true. All right. Next question. What's your favorite book or a favorite book that you've read? Haley. Beside all uh, of your textbooks from yeah, cover to cover. I've taken a little hiatus um, since grad <laughs> school from reading, but I think uh, one of my favorite books of all time is Night by Elie Wiesel. It's a really good mm. book. Very good. Dr. Slayton. That's a really good question, Todd, and thank you for asking it. It is kind of awesome <laughs> read a book for pleasure. <laughs> and I can't remember the name of it. I think it was called Boys in the Boat. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Yep. The Boeing crew from you, University of Washington? Yes. Yeah. Loved it. It was awesome. Um, I think probably H is for Hawk by Helen mm -hmm. McDonald is mm -hmm. my most recent favorite. Oh, good. Good one. Excellent. Uh, Haley, what's your favorite genre of music? I really like soul music, like R&B, soul. That's that's what I listen to. That's my jam. <laughs> awesome. Dr. Sladen? Can I say 80s? <laughs> <laughs> 80s music. Is, awesome. is it a genre now? Like, would you say this is a genre? It's a, it's a decade of music. Yeah, it can be a genre <laughs> if you want it to be. That's fine. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm going to have to say, in honor of my family, I'm going to say bluegrass. <laughs> That's what we listen to a lot of. Yeah, I, I went. I grew up going to quite a few bluegrass festivals in the Carolinas and Georgia, because my father loved it. So we could talk about those experiences yeah. at some point. Um, uh, Haley, what's your favorite food? Oh, uh, I'm going to go with mac and cheese on that one. Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese. Doctor Sladen. Anything Thai food. Thai. Oh. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. I'm going to say pizza. Pizza. Okay. So what yeah. is... Now we're all hungry. It's <laughs> yeah. dinner time. Yes, it is. Any right. kind of... I'm thinking of pizza. <laughs> so what's your most exotic place you've been? Haley. Oh, that's a good question. It's not exotic, 
but it's the farthest place I've been, and it's Ireland. Ireland, good, good. Yeah, same. Like the farthest I've been is um, uh, Prague, but I wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know if I'd call it exotic. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine, Dr. Peter. Exotic. Well, the Netherlands is the farthest I've been, and probably the most interesting for me. I feel like that was. I'd never been to Europe until Mm -hmm. like right before the pandemic. That was the last trip I took. So very memorable. Good timing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would say Lake Como was one of the, not exactly Mm -hmm. exotic, but quite beautiful. The HEAL conference, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're they're doing it next year. Yeah. (laughs) Talking about that. (laughs) We were just, we were just planning our escape. I told my, my wife, see, the quick story, we went many years ago, and I took my wife, and she, you know, I was in the conference, you know, doing my thing, and she was out stalking George Clooney. She was trying to find out where he lived, <laughs> and so she walked all of over course. Lake Como trying to figure out where he lived, and, and then broken Italian trying to ask people, <laughs> like, in the in the shops if they've seen George Clooney, and <laughs> so that's what she did the whole time. Um, what's the scariest thing you've ever done hmm. or experience? Or scariest thing? That's a good question. Gosh, for me, probably moving to Texas in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> away from all of our family and friends. I would say, yeah, that takes the cake probably. That's a big step. Yeah. Scariest thing I've ever done. Gosh, um, having twins. It's <laughs> been the, like, the scariest That's scary. in the world. <laughs> that that would scare the heck out of me too. Uh-huh. So yeah. I, I, I get that. I was gonna say having children too, and I don't even have twins. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Peters. Um I once was lowered, willingly lowered into a crevasse to be rescued from it. That was pretty terrifying <laughs> during a mountaineering class. I was, oh, wow. I was lowered on ropes oh, okay. by some friends into a crevasse and then they had to practice rescuing me oh. and it took them a while. Um, <laughs> I was geez. down there for a while. <laughs> yeah. So, here at Mount Baker. Yeah. So if they failed the task, you're still out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. I'm glad they, they got you out. I know. Um, what's your pet peeve? Or a pet peeve? Uh, I think I would go with like chewing loudly. That's a pet mm. peeve of mine. Um, yeah. I'm grading some papers right now. And so <laughs> grammar. <laughs> grammar is a pet peeve, yes. Definitely a pet peeve right now. <laughs> yeah, I can get that. Yeah. Starting it's a, a passive voice. Acronym. Passive voice is a pet peeve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The word while uh, is definitely one of my <laughs> pet mm-hmm. Plethora. I think plethora might be plethora. my pet <laughs> That might be a peeve of mine, but also passive voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Passive voice. That's a pet peeve. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So just, just two more. Um, if you didn't choose your current profession, what profession would you like to choose uh, to try, or what would you have chosen? 
I always thought I might like to be a marine biologist. I really mm-hmm. like the ocean and sea animals. So I thought that might be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I would go with marine biology. Awesome. I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh-oh. <laughs> Are you switching careers? I'm not any career <laughs> angst here. I'm definitely too far invested into this. <laughs> but if I could, I think I'd want to be a florist or a, or run a nursery. That seems like a pretty good gig. What a, what a good feeling job to be able to sell people flowers or to grow flowers and plants and sell them. I've been fairly jealous of people at the nursery when I go to buy plants. I totally agree. I feel the same way. I might also be a dog trainer. Okay. That I might enjoy. But I agree with the gardening. I, that is, I have had a lot of mm-hmm, thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> And the last question is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? That's a tough one. I guess uh, maybe if he like, or she or whoever made a joke of some sort or something like that to like lighten the moon, just to, just so you feel comfortable and welcome. Just to be like totally different from what, you know, yeah. like not, not serious at all. I like it. I like okay, it. Okay, it's all good. It's all good. Right. Bring some levity to it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, levity. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Gosh, that's a really tough question. What about, what, I guess I want them to say like, you're allowed in or <laughs> you can stay. <laughs> the gate won't open. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I would say I would, well, maybe um, you're old. <laughs> yeah, good that's job. Right. Good that's job. right. Took you long enough. <laughs> Took you long, long enough. enough. That's right. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. <laughs> that's right. We've been waiting. And you did your best. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, guys, thank you for your time this evening. It's been a lot of fun. And if if we have some listeners who would like to reach out to you, is there a main email address uh, that they could uh, maybe reach out, especially if they have more questions about uh, teleaudiology or any of the uh, studies that you guys are doing? Sure. They're welcome to yeah. reach out to me. Uh, mm-hmm. My email is uh, douglas.sladen at www.edu. Perfect. Great. Yep. Well, thank you again, guys. It's been a lot of fun and wish you all continued success. And Haley, good luck in Texas. Uh, thank you. It's pretty hot down there. So I hope <laughs> hope it goes well. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, that was Haley Prinz and Drs. Doug Sladen and Kim Peters from Western Washington University. We really appreciate uh, all of them being with us uh, on today's show to talk about their research in teleaudiology, as well as sharing some of their perspectives on where audiology and telepractice is going, that teleaudiology. And so I think everybody who's in the field right now would, I think, agree that telepractice is going to become more and more a part of audiology practice going forward. So teleaudiology is going to get bigger and bigger as we go. And with that, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you guys 
really supporting our show and this podcast. We couldn't do it without you. If you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. That helps us to attract new subscribers and to reach new people. Please share this podcast with others. We really want to increase the number of subscribers that we get. And so we need you to kind of help us with that. So until next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. Music